Sigmund thought that Sinfjotli was too young to help exact revenge against King Sigir. Also, Sigmund thought that Sinfjotli was Sigir's son and might be unwilling to kill his own father. So to harden the boy, Sigmund roamed with him through the woods, killing and looting wayfarers. Once Sigmund and Sinfjotli came to a house where two men were asleep under a spell, a wolfskin hung over each man, which could be shed only every tenth day. They put on the skins, and they could not get them off. Now they howled like wolves and ran off into the forest, killing many men. And Sigmund bit Sinfjotli on the windpipe, nearly killing him. But a raven flew by with a leaf, which Sigmund applied to Sinfjotli's wound, bringing him back to full health. When next they were able to remove the wolfskins, they burned them in a fire. Listeners out there in the hinterlands, welcome back. I'm Rock, and this is my co-host Max, and we're going to be your guys as we traverse the halls of all things supernatural here at Nightmares and Daydreams. Hey, everyone! Yes, welcome. As you probably know, Rock and I are here today to discuss and debate our way through all things paranormal, legendary, and monstrous. Oh yeah, and of course, fun. Yes, fun. But Max, do you want to know what's not fun? Nope. But I have the strange feeling you're going to tell me anyway being stalked by a ravening beast that mere moments before walked on two legs instead of four. So, that's a horrible rhyme. Did you make that up? (laughs) (laughs) On the spot, my man, right now. It shows. Critics, man. Geniuses are never appreciated in their time, Max. And also, haters gonna hate. And moving on. All right, folks, listen up. We're gonna have us a howling good time on this here episode. Lord help us. What? Already it starts. In case Rock's horrible verse and bad joke weren't enough of a hint, folks, we're talking about werewolves today. Even a man who is pure of heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolf bane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. See, now that's a good rhyme. Going super old school with the classic line from the 1941 film, The Wolf Man. Max, don't even get me singing Werewolves of London. Though, full disclosure, when I sing it, I go with Werewolves of Austin just to make the creepiness hit a little closer to home. Man, you're stoked for the show. I am. So, (laughs) as I said earlier, this show is going to focus on werewolves. And maybe a few other shapeshifters. A little bit. Exactly. Just a little. Because there's so much werewolf stuff out there that there literally won't be time for too much non-woofy lycanthropy. I think that's a bit oxymoronic. No need for name-calling jumbo shrimp. (laughs) I'm just saying. (laughs) Lycanthropes are, by definition, wolfy. I think the non-wolfy ones are called therianthropes. You mean like uh, Anna Magi? Exactly. Like Sirius Black. You know, of course, Professor Lupin was a werewolf. No one would have ever guessed by his name, though. No, he was super discreet. No one in the entirety of Hogwarts' student body or teachers knew what he was about. (laughs) Exactly. And Sirius Black was not very different. He was a black dog. Yep. Named after Sirius the Dog Star. 
And I hope we're not spoiling Harry Potter for you lovely folks out there. Yeah, as you may have figured out from previous episodes, people, anything more than a decade or two is fair game for spoilers on our show. So we should probably stop talking about Harry Potter and get into real legends then, huh? Wait, real legends? What are you saying? You're the Ravenclaw. You figure it out. You're such a Slytherin sometimes. Thank you, sir. Okay, Max, my first question is this. If you had a wolfskin that you could use to change form, would you burn it or would you keep it? I don't know. That's a tough one. I mean, let's be honest. It'd be pretty awesome. Hmm. But I guess if I was compelled to kill people and didn't have that much control... Yeah, and could only take the skin off after like a week and a half, 10 days. Makes the proposition a bit more dicey, huh? Yeah, that part's tough. Especially if you felt the killing compulsion. That would be the point of it, right? To feel the power of like an alpha predator? I mean, that's one aspect for sure. But you'd keep it? Because you sound like you'd keep it. I mean, I'm a sucker for magic. If the one piece of real magic I had had some negative effects, <laughs> I might still keep it, I have to admit. Some negative effects? Just a couple glitches, like killing innocents to satisfy your bloodlust? And you called me a Slytherin. <laughs> we all have a little bit of all the houses in us, I like to think. Just keep telling yourself that. But honestly, if I think back to a couple of our old school D&D campaigns, you played a vampire and certain other nefarious characters with a uh, certain gusto, shall we say. <laughs> hey, I mean, right, it's an RPG. Don't hate because I'm a gifted role player. You know, I wouldn't call a character flaw a gift, my friend, but okay. So the story we heard at the start was from the Volsung Saga, which is Icelandic, yeah? Uh-huh. And uh, from the late 13th century. Yeah, so like 750, 800 years old, at least the written version. The original stories were no doubt much older. Right, right. So, makes you wonder. Yeah. I mean, how far back do these legends go? Well, I mean, I know they go at least as far back as, like... Okay, let me guess. Might I get an order of chicken Corfu, my good man? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Ancient Greece. Ancient Greece. Man. To all our attractive and intelligent listeners out there, Max is a classical studies guy, so he talks about ancient Greece quite often. But I still know more about Clash of the Titans than he does. How can you explain that, Max? Um, Maybe because Clash of the Titans is not real. (laughs) If my man Perseus were here right now, he'd turn you to stone with Medusa's nasty reptilian head for your blasphemy. You need to recognize Perseus is real. Right. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Back to the fact. So Herodotus is the earliest literary mention of men changing into wolves that I know about. And he was like early 5th century BCE. He described how certain Scythian tribes, like in Central Asia, about 100 years before him. And so like 6th century BCE, like 2,600 years ago? Exactly. So the people of these certain tribes were wizards. He says the Scythians and the Greeks that were living in Scythia all attest that the Nuri, which is the name of this certain tribe, all turn into wolves once a year and then change back a few days later. Hmm. He claims not to be convinced by the story himself, but says that the people that told it to him swear that it's true. Right, right. So that's similar to the Icelandic story. The people can change shape, but the transition lasts a few days. Exactly, yeah. So it's interesting in a way. There don't seem to be a lot of details like fleshing out the story, but Mm -hmm. that aspect at least matches. And no full moon needed at this point, I guess, or at least not that they mention. It's just magic, right? 
Yeah, so I don't think the moon thing came until later, although it's mentioned in passing in another story, but not as a requirement. Oh? Yeah, so there's this really famous werewolf story, like from Roman literature. In a lot of ways, it seems almost modern. It's from like the first century. A.D.? Yeah, so like around the time of Nero, so 50s or 60s A.D. Hmm, Nice. A tale written on papyrus by the ancients? Lay it on us. When I was a slave, we were living on a narrow street where the home of Gawas is now. That was where the gods decided I would fall in love with the wife of Terence, the innkeeper. You do remember Melissa from Tarento, that beautiful little thing? By God, I loved her less for her body and sex than I did for her fine morals. She didn't deny me anything I sought. She made a penny, I got half. I put everything I had into her lap and was never cheated. Her husband passed away at the inn one day. As you can imagine, I risked Scylla and Charybdis so I could get to her. For as they say, friends are present in time of need. By chance, my master was visiting Capua in pursuit of some business. I took my chance and compelled a guest to accompany me to the fifth milestone. He was a soldier and strong as Orcus. We blundered off around the time of Coxcrow while the moon was still shining bright as midday. We were walking through the graveyard and my friend went among the stones to defecate. I sat singing and counting grave markers. But then, as I looked for my companion, he appeared naked and set his clothes all down in a pile near the road. I could hardly breathe. I was standing still as a corpse, but he just pissed around his clothes and suddenly became a wolf. Don't you dare imagine I'm joking or that I'm lying. I'm making up none of this, but back to what I started to say. After he turned into a wolf, he began to howl and fled into the forest. At first, I didn't remember where I was. Then I went to gather up his clothes, but they had transformed into stones. I nearly died from fear. I went all the way to my girlfriend's home, stabbing my sword at every shadow, and entered her house pale as a ghost with sweat rushing down my body and my eyes nearly dead. I could hardly regain myself. My Melissa was at first surprised because I had gone out so late. And then she said, I wish you had come earlier. You could have helped us. A wolf entered the house and spilled more blood than a butcher. He escaped, but he didn't get the last laugh. An older slave tore his throat with a spear. Once I heard these words, I couldn't sleep any longer. At first light, I fled the home of Gaius. I came to the place where his clothing had turned to stone, but I found nothing but blood. I went home and my soldier was lying like a bull on his bed with a doctor tending to his neck. I knew then that he was a shapeshifter, and you couldn't have convinced me to share a meal with him even if you threatened to kill me. Let these men believe whatever they want about this, but if I'm lying, let the gods hate me. Lots of interesting details in that story. I love the part where the werewolf pees around his clothes. In fact, I recall reading a Bruja story involving three witches peeing in a circle around their father. Who knows what it meant, though? Yeah, seriously. Uh, So, interesting in regard to the Brujas. I seem to recall a movie where a a werewolf peed on something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Jack Nicholson did that in Wolf. Remember when he peed on James Spader's shoes? Yeah, now I remember. I love that. Uh But did you notice the quick mention of the moon in the previous story? Yeah, I did. And you're right. It is just kind of a background detail, but it does match our modern understanding of werewolf lore. We blundered off around the time of Cox Crow while the moon was shining as bright as midday. Full moon, 100%. Definitely a full moon. Now, this story was for sure fiction. I mean, it was written as fiction. But the details added to the story had to obviously make sense to Petronius readers. So I think they're important. Exactly. Like you wouldn't tell a vampire story in the middle of the day, for example. Exactly. That makes me think. What's that? When did werewolves and vampires become mortal enemies? 
I know, right? You'd figure as two of the top tier creatures of darkness had get along, you know, pull their efforts for greater bloodletting. Maybe it's the whole rivalry between bats and wolves. Oh, nice. You're obviously talking about the classic Batman comic where he fights the Wolfman, yeah? But wait, come to think of it, Batman also fought Dracula. Hell, he might even have fought Frankenstein. He apparently has a mat on for all the classic monsters. The Dark Knight just needs to mind his own business. Actually, no. What I'm talking about is when Alexander Corvinus got that virus. Uh, how funny. I don't think everyone is up on the lore behind the Underworld franchise, though. Well, they should be. Kate Beckinsale is a true hero. You mean Celine? Who? Oh, I mean, yeah, totally. <laughs> What's the first werewolf movie or show that you remember seeing? Silver Bullet, I think. Maybe Teen Wolf? How about you? Man, Silver Bullet. I love that flick. You know, it's based on King's short story cycle of the werewolf. A true classic. Word. In fact... <laughs> Go ahead. I didn't count on us getting through this without you talking about at least one flick. Sweet. Okay, y'all. Quick review of Silver Bullet. Corey Haim plays wheelchair-bound Marty, who, with the help of his drunk Uncle Red, played by an equally drunk Gary Busey, must figure out <laughs> who is killing all the kids around town. Hint, it might be a werewolf. And we're done. Quick and concise. And not even any spoilers. Nice. So, what werewolf flick do you recall seeing first? American Werewolf in London. Absolutely terrified me when I was a kid. That whole transformation scene? I mean, Rick Baker's a freaking genius. Classic. That's where I learned to stay off the moors and also to never backpack across Europe. <laughs> Not worth it. Exactly. Came out in 1981. What a year for werewolf movies. American Werewolf in London, The Howling, Wolfen. Pretty amazing. Guess it was in the zeitgeist or something. Werewolves became the cool thing for the movie business. Seriously, werewolves haven't been that popular since the 16th century. <laughs> That was definitely the height of the werewolf hysteria, mm -hmm. especially in the old Holy Roman Imperial lands like Germany, parts of France. Yeah, Gilles Garnier, the werewolf of Dole, Jacques Roulet, the werewolf of Angers, werewolf of Ansbach, and my personal favorite, the Beast of Gévaudan, which, dear listeners, if you want to see a wacky kung fu, political intrigue, love story, conspiracy, costume drama, all based around the Beast of Gévaudan, check out Brotherhood of the Wolf. It's a bit of a hot mess of a movie, but it's really enjoyable if you like guys in tri-corner hats and highwaymen cloaks engaged in slow-motion martial arts. And it's French, which Max loves. Absolutely. <laughs> the movie's insane. So these late medieval werewolf tales are some of the most famous, it seems. Yeah, for whatever reason, maybe because there's so much detail and the witnesses... We're at least trying to think about the situation scientifically. I mean, well, as scientifically as it could be in the 16th century. That definitely makes a difference to me. I think if the person that witnessed it at least tried to be circumspect and determine the truth of the situation rather than just blindly accepting seemingly magical conclusions as a matter of fact, for me, it has more weight behind it. I agree, because back in those days, magic was more relatable to the commoner, serf, peasant, or what have you. And much of the darkness or troubles in the world back then was blamed on the devil or the powers of darkness. Yeah, for sure. Although Herodotus does make a pretense of questioning facts, I think in large part the ancient tales were mostly different in that regard. Maybe we should tell one of these medieval tales just to see the difference. I'm in. Let us begin with a man, Peter Stubb. He is called Stump or Stumpf in the German. He was born in the village of Eprath, near the town of Bedburg, in the electorate of Cologne. Sometime in the 1580s, his wife died, and he became the widower father of two children. 
One was a daughter named Bila, and the other a son of unknown age. Surprisingly, he was a relatively wealthy farmer in this rural community, but it was later said that from his youth he was greatly inclined to evil. After being stretched on the rack, Stubb admitted to practicing black magic since the age of 12. He claimed he made a pact with the devil to turn himself into a beast. He was able to do this with the magical belt the devil had given him, which transformed him into a beast. He is described in a pamphlet that circulated as the likeness of a greedy, devouring wolf, strong and mighty, with eyes great and large, which in the night sparkled like fire, a mouth great and wide, with most sharp and cruel teeth, a huge body and mighty paws. When he removed the belt, he became a man again. For some 25 years, this went on. The pamphlet paints him as a serial killer. He murdered livestock, women, and children. He admitted to the killing of 14 children and the murder of two pregnant women. The pamphlet describes his murder of the pregnant women in detail, saying he ripped the babies from the womb and ate their hearts, panting hot and raw. He later called the baby hearts dainty morsels. No belt was ever found. Peter Stubb was put to the wheel and tortured with hot pinchers. It is said they ripped the flesh from his body in ten places. Then they broke his arms and legs with the blunt side of a wood-cutting axe to prevent him from returning from the grave. Then he was beheaded and burned. In the pyre beside him was the tortured bodies of his daughter and mistress. They were flayed and strangled with collaboration and witchcraft. He was said to have had an incestuous relationship with his daughter and his mistress was a distant relative, also seen as incest. After his burning, they placed his head on the dead corpse of a wolf and spiked it outside the town as a warning. So, I've heard of a belt of giant strength, but that was something else entirely. Yeah, more like a hat of disguise, I think. Or a polymorph potion. Okay, so you didn't want to burn the wolfskins earlier. But what do you think now? I mean, I don't want to get tortured. I think you're missing the point. <laughs> Wait, what are you asking me again? <laughs> Would you wear the belt and eat dainty morsels? Well, no, I mean, of course not. But let's be honest, that confession was kind of sketch. True, it was extracted with some pretty horrible torture. But on the other hand, someone was killing those people, right? And presumably the killings ended, or at least there's no record of them continuing on. And even if a modicum of what they accused Stubb of was true, dude got what he deserved. Okay, fair enough. But let's say this guy's a werewolf, and a belt or some other magical garment is certainly in line with the older literature on the subject. But they say the belt was never found, so... Yeah, I was thinking about that too. Presumably it's still out there. Some German serial killer is out there eating dainty morsels. Good thing about the European Union is open borders, so he or she doesn't have to stay in Germany. I blame Helmut Kohl for the current European werewolf problem. <laughs> exactly, he was just trying to export his lycanthropy problem to other countries. You know, the other part of the missing wolf belt is that the uh, dark woodsman or the devil simply took the belt back and passed it off to some other evil schmuck. Interesting theory. So let's talk about the nature of werewolves for a bit. Sounds good. So what are their weaknesses? Is silver like the only thing? Actually, the silver bullet or silver weapon as a means of killing a werewolf is pretty much a complete Hollywood fabrication. I don't know, man. I've seen a lot of werewolves killed by silver bullets. How do you explain that? Mm, you know, Max, unless you're a werewolf hunter on the sly, those werewolves were killed in Hollywood movies. But doesn't that seem a little too convenient? Well, it was in the script, so... <laughs> okay, so if silver doesn't do it, what does? Wolf's 
vein could be used to form a potion or medicine, which, according to the ancients, would cure the disease. Hence the name? I believe it was used on poison arrows to kill actual wolves by the Greeks, and that's where the name Lycotonum comes from, which translates to wolf's bane. Poor wolfies. You probably wouldn't think that if you're an ancient farmer with a bronze machete or a wooden quarterstaff. Eh, maybe not. Okay, so what else? There are apparently references to surgeries performed. That's kind of weird. I wonder what they do. Cosmetic mostly, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Sicilian folklore held that if you struck a werewolf in the forehead with a knife, it would be cured. I mean, if by cured you mean dead, then yeah, pretty good folk remedy right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just use it once. Works every time. Mostly people, though, in medieval Europe believed in exorcism or whatever evil curse caused you to transform into a beast. You had to get the evil entity out. I guess that makes sense if it's an evil spirit or whatnot causing it. Exorcism should do the trick. But what if it was genetic, like with Teen Wolf? Michael J. Fox was the friendliest werewolf ever. You know, even after he threatened that poor clerk to get a keg of delicious beer. (laughs) And Max, also, according to the lore... There are some less violent ways of curing a werewolf, like saying its Christian name three times. Danes believed you could just scold a werewolf and it would be cured. Bad dog. No walkies or treaties for you. Maybe if you just, you know, you also used a rolled up newspaper for that extra effect. <laughs> right. I mean, crosses work for vampires, rolled up newspaper for werewolves. Mm-hmm. For only Danish werewolves. Yeah, like, I think the Danish (laughs) werewolf society is spreading some misinformation to protect themselves. I agree, man. Danish werewolves be telling some stories right there. Speaking of stories... You got one for us? I do. Situated on the Elba River, the ancient fortress town of Magdeburg in Prussian Saxony with its stone walls, cobblestone roads, and steep-roofed houses, seemed a safe haven against beings of the Elder World. But this tale shows that even guard-patrolled walls and streets can be little protection against the creatures of the night. The first child went missing in January, when the town canals were iced over and harsh winds came down from the wolf-haunted Harz Mountains. Authorities found nothing, only an open window and an empty nursery, The next night, another child went missing from another house, and then another the following night. No sound was heard. Nothing was amiss, save for the children themselves. But clues began to surface. Outside the homes of the missing children, large wolf tracks were found. The town magistrate, a hulking, well-liked man whose name was Braber, assured his people that the predator would soon be caught and killed. He set extra guards, town curfews, and hired hunters. Yet the town's children kept vanishing, the nocturnal thief taking more small victims. With no way to vent their anger and fear, the townsfolk began to turn on Braber for his failure in protecting them. Even his own wife, disappointment clearly evident in her ice-blue eyes, denied him her bed and company. Braber, a brave man, stoically accepted the punishment. He walked his own lonely patrol at night, armed with sword and axe nodding to his soldiers and looking in the darkness for any clue that might help him in the terror that had befallen his town. It came in the form of a mad woman. She came out of the shadows to grab his arm one night and lead him into the winding alleyways. The night has teeth, she crooned. He recognized her. She had been the first mother to lose her child and that loss had unraveled her mind. Come, I'll show you. The night has teeth. She led him outside the city to snow-covered fields through an old hunting trail he had used many times himself. 
Abruptly, she let go of his arm and darted off in front of him, vanishing in the darkness. He gave chase and saw her enter a small hunting lodge. Seconds later, he heard her scream. Drawing his sword, the magistrate burst into the lodge. It was a slaughterhouse. Blood was on the walls and small bones lay in piles on the floor, and the madwoman's scream ended abruptly. His eyes bulged at the sight of the creature that rose up before him, its maw wet with the madwoman's blood, her throat torn away, and in the corner of the lodge was the shaking form of a small child. This was his child stealer. The beast stood on two legs, somewhere between animal and human. A large wolf's head stared at him, its eyes narrowing, claws curled and flexed on human-like hands. A deep growl echoed up from the creature's throat, and it lunged. But Brever was faster. He held his sword with a steady hand and plunged it into the creature's chest as it charged him, his own fierce cry matching the beast's roar. The thing writhed and whined as the blade pierced its heart. It fell in a heap in front of the magistrate. Breathing heavily, he raised his sword, ready to take the monster's head off. But his blade never fell. He watched in horror as the fur melted away from the creature in front of him. Claws receded, long teeth vanished, and blonde hair sprouted from the wolf's head. The body spasmed and shook in one last convulsion. And there before Breber lay his wife her ice-blue eyes staring sightlessly at the ceiling. Bewildered and crying, the magistrate picked up the wailing child and made his way back to Magdeburg. The kidnapping ceased, and he never spoke with his wife again. Yet the old ones did. They told of a trip that autumn that Breber and his wife had taken into the Harz Mountains. There, it was whispered, she had drank from a mountain pool and paid a horrible price. The waters of this pool sprang from an ancient source, the old ones said. From deep within the earth where some dark magic had infested the water, poisoning it, one drink would infect a person, making them forfeit their humanity and take the form of a ravening beast when the sun went down and wolves howled in the cold of the Har's mountains. See, this is why I'm all about bringing my own water and not drinking out of magical mountain pools. No matter how beautiful or tempting they might look, right? Yep. And if you listen to our Hags episode... You know that the lonely mountain pools are actually the preferred location of many a water hag. Mm-hmm. You are right, my friend. Peg Powler herself might be lying in wait, ready to pull you down into her watery lair. Or, if you're lucky, you might just get turned into a werewolf. Yeah, so either way, stay away from the ancient water sources, people. Bring your own fluids, all right? Let's play it safe out there. Or at least filter the water. You know, that, that helps. At least. So, might work. We've talked a lot about European lycanthropes. What about shape changers in other cultures? Didn't some Native American tribes have similar beliefs? Yeah, most definitely. For example, the Navajo believe in witches that can change into wolves, kind of like those Scythian wizards or the Norsemen, by putting on a wolf skin. And I believe in Haiti, there are wolf spirits called the Je Rouge, mm. which is like red eyes, which possess people and turn them into what are basically werewolves, cannibalistic, violent killers. Friendly. And they're known for tricking mothers and taking their children away. Yikes. In Mexico and Mesoamerica, the Nahual is a person who made a pact with the devil. Like old Peter Stubb. Exactly. But the Nahuals can be either good or evil. Just depends on their personality or the person. So it seems like maybe if you made a deal with the devil, that might actually already say a little something about your personality. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. But other pre-Columbian traditions seem to say it's an inherited trait, 
like Teen Wolf. Yeah, yeah, like Teen Wolf. So, anyway, there are conflicting traditions, but in rural Mexico, Nahual are assumed to be brujos who can shapeshift into animal form. Not just wolves, though. Dogs, owls, bats, even turkeys. So... I want to make a joke about wear turkeys, <laughs> but I do like how this tradition overlaps with our lechuzas from our very first episode. So I just had to point that out. Delicious wear turkeys. <laughs> exactly. Since we're on the subject of non-European lycanthropy, I'd like to bring up one that I thought was pretty interesting. Please do. So have you ever heard of a tall, T-A-W, tall? Can't say I have, no. Me neither, but apparently the Taw are a tribe of mountain werewolves out of Thailand. Damn, nice. Thai werewolf, please continue. So, I came across this story. This is a great tale. I came across it in Fate magazine. Nice. Love it. Old school. So, according to naturalist, spy, adventurer, and all-around old-school badass Harold M. Young, I mean, look this guy up. What an amazing life he lived. Uh, he encountered a tall when he was among the Lahu, a tribe of mountain people in northern Thailand. So was he attacked? No, but he witnessed he witnessed the attack. Check it out. So Young was super fluent in all the dialects of the mountain tribes, the Lahu and the Wa. So he was welcomed into their villages and was great friends with them. An avid hunter and tracker, Young would go on hunts with the Lahu. So this one time he treks up in the mountains and it's not an easy journey, but he does it because he likes him and he wants to hunt, right? So he gets there to the village, but the chief is adamant. No, no one is going into the jungle right now because a tall is on the prowl. How did he know? Well, I assume he was a chief man, kind of had his hand on the pulse. Uh, <laughs> but So the chief tells Young that a hunt is out of the question. And before Young, you know, who had heard of the Taws before, but thought it was all nonsense, before he could voice any objection, a scream is heard on the other side of the village. Oh, hell. Hope they had silver bullets or silver arrowheads or something. <laughs> Only in the movies, Max. Well, Young immediately unstraps his pistol and darts in that direction, homing in on the screen. He goes to a hut, peers in a window, and sees this wolf-like creature tearing a woman's throat out. He empties his pistol into the creature who turns and peers at him with red eyes before it jumps out of the other window and is lost in the darkness. Damn, this guy didn't even hesitate. What a badass. Right? We'd like to think we'd all be that cool under pressure. So what happened to the woman? Was she all right? Uh, she was beyond help, unfortunately. But the next morning, Young and the other hunters, who were scared out of their wits, by the way, they go to the scene of the crime and notice blood outside the window in the foliage. Young was certain it was the blood of the beast because he was certain he had hit it and he wanted to track it. So he and the Lahu warriors track it outside the village, but then the trail loops back in and enters the village on the other side. Oh, hell. It's a villager, right? Yep. So they go to a hut and then there is a dead villager, a well-known person, a well-liked person from the village with like eight bullet holes riddling his body and blood all over his mouth and face. This convinced Young that the tall were real, and it made him wonder what other legends the mountain people spoke of that were just as real. Right? Like, what other legends are based in fact? What a great story. I agree, and it shows that wolfmen are maybe more widespread than we thought. They're everywhere. We're surrounded. Quick aside, had you heard of the belief that people born on Christmas were doomed to become werewolves? Really? That's odd. Yeah, the Lord's kind of divided on the reason, but one is that it's an insult to Jesus because that's his birthday. So yeah, go be a werewolf. <laughs> Maybe he just likes doggies. Get out of here and go be a werewolf. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I love all these. Like, 
There's so many fascinating beliefs. Yeah, Love it. I agree. Super interesting. Well, beautiful people, there's literally no end to these wolfy myths and traditions, but the moon will be up soon. And we have a long hike home through the moors. Max, hope you brought the anti-werewolf spray and at the very least have your dagger of werewolf slaying on you. Yep, I do. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> silver, so, so we're safe. <laughs> as long as it's silver. Those, those Hollywood werewolves are doomed. <laughs> All right, we're going to wrap it up here, folks. And everybody out there, remember, if you're having a good time with uh, Max and I, please tell your friends about us. It makes such a difference in our ability to continue this project of ours and get it out there to the masses. So please take the time out and give us that coveted five-star review. And like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Visit us on our website, nightmarespodcast.net. And as always, the music for our show is Calliope's Call by the beautiful and talented Teresa Joy. Find her at Viobright, V-I-O-B-R-I-T-E, on Instagram and Facebook. And as always, sweet dreams.